So welcome back to another episode of the Awesome Awful Podcast presented by The Daily Drunk. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the quintessential terrible movies, Samurai Cop. And we're here to talk about it with Shane Wilson. Hello, Shane. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you for agreeing to watch this movie with me. <laughs> I, was, I was telling you before the show, Samurai Cop has been on my list for a long time. But once I started this podcast, I had to wait for somebody to want to talk about it, to watch it. So you gave me that opportunity. So I have to thank you for that. And then I have to start with why this movie? Why did you choose this movie? Several years ago, at this point, I was having a weekly bad movie night at my place. And so I would invite all my friends over and we would run through the docket, right? And you can probably name all the first movies that we watched off the top of your head. The Room, Birdemic, uh, Fateful Findings was in there somewhere. A bunch of a bunch of bad stuff and then you know some other like sort of major studio releases that were also bad found their way into the mix but then we started like running low on the movies that we all knew were bad and so we started doing this research and stumbled across uh this gym somehow i don't even really know how we found it but we sort of knew that it was going to be bad going in that was the that was kind of the whole reason that we that we chose it but there's nothing that you can read it's very much like the room in that way there's nothing you can read that can fully prepare you for what you're going to experience when you get in there yeah and you used a keyword there i feel like this is no longer a movie it's more of an experience it is it is mm -hmm. a viewing experience because it is something else but more on that in a second what at what scene when watching i mean you knew it was going to be bad but at what scene were you like, oh, man, this is like this is a whole new level of bad. What, what was the scene that did it in for you? I think that with any uh, film like this, it's an evolution. It becomes pretty apparent early on that you're watching something kind of bad. And then a little later on, something else will tip you off to, oh, oh, I didn't even realize that, that this is what was happening. Right. And then eventually you're like, oh, God, like the whole thing is coming apart. You know, right out of the gate, the opening uh, high speed chase scene is just bonkers and impossible to follow and the fact that he's communicating from uh the, from his car to this helicopter and i don't even know how honestly the, how they're communicating <laughs> he's just kind of talking and she hears him uh and the fact that this helicopter the the officer in the helicopter is following the the bad guys right away from this drug deal and in just rush hour traffic can just like pick them out it's a blue van it's that one. Oh, that's it i've got them right like so there's a whole bunch of tips in that first opening chase scene that that sort of you're like okay so so this is the ride that we're in for but i think for me it was anytime matt hannon was talking for a long period of time i i, I felt myself just sinking further and further into that abyss of of shittiness you know <laughs> yeah that chase scene there was one point maybe like 20 minutes in where I was like, I don't think this chase scene's ever going to end. I think the whole movie is going to be a single chase scene because it goes <laughs> it on feel like forever. 
It yeah, does. And, they're, and they're just making these weird turns and I just lose it all together for a little while there. And this is kind of a, a, a recurring theme in this film for a little while. They're driving through residential areas and then they're in the desert and then they're in, you know, a forest. And, you know, and th there are fight scenes later on in the film that, that have that same kind of thing where the landscape just completely changes mid fight. For me, I mean, the thing that I most adore about this film is the dialogue. There's so much. I think the first time when I was watching it, uh, the first time, the first moment in the film where I absolutely just lost my bearings and just laughed out loud was when, so, okay. So for those of you not in the know, the premise of Samurai Cop is this guy, Joe Samurai, who is a simultaneously a cop and a samurai, right? Because he trained with the samurai. And so he's brought in to go up against this, this gang and he's brought in because it's a, it's a Japanese gang. And he's brought in as the resident Japanese expert, right? This this big, bulky white dude from, I think he's from San Diego. And uh, so anyway, so there's this scene where they're like the Katana gang. Katana, what does that mean? And he goes, it means Japanese sword. And <laughs> I'm like, that's like saying amigo means Mexican friend, right? Like, and that when I when he said that, just something clicked off in my head and I just lost it. That was the first moment that I lost it. And then... Obviously, you could talk about the scene between him and the nurse where she's asking him about the size of his package or the really long monologue that he delivers in that restaurant to the head of the Katana gang. I'm telling you, sons of bitches, like <laughs> so good. Yeah, they they the, the big tip off that was definitely the Katana part. The fact that they're mm -hmm. called the Katana gang and how much they force samurai into this movie. And there's not a single thing samurai related in this movie other than that there are a few Japanese characters. There is no possible way that Joe Samurai is a samurai, nor is his rival a samurai. There is no possible way they are samurais. Yeah. But my my favorite was whenever they asked who Joe Marshall was, I forget who it was, but they go, they call him samurai. His real name's Joe Marshall. They call him samurai. He speaks fluent Japanese. Like that's the only <laughs> criteria. But then there's yeah. a part where he meets a guy named Fujiyama and he goes, what's your name? Like, Fu, Fu, Fujiyama? Like, yeah, he has so right. much trouble like, saying dude, it. <laughs> this dude does not seem very, I mean, even articulate in English, to be fair, right? <laughs> much less multilingual. You know, you talk about the, the Japanese gang, the Katana gang. There's a surprising number of white people in that gang for that to be a Japanese gang. <laughs> I was legit looking for the Japanese people, like where right. I think there was one guy, maybe <laughs> like yeah, was... the leader. But then there's just a bunch of like, there's a guy that looks kind of like Eli Manning. He's the accountant. And then there's that that redheaded lady. And then uh, the only guy in the movie that that gets top billing uh, over Joe Marshall is Robert Zadar as Yamashita. But I mean, that's just a white dude with an Asian name, too. It's funny because when I was in college, I, I studied like Japanese history. So I was a little bit familiar going into this. And I thought there would actually be a samurai. And there's not a samurai. This is kind of like Nick Cage's movie, Jiu-Jitsu. There's mm. not a single dose of Jiu-Jitsu in that whole movie. There's not a single reference or anything to say other than the katanas they randomly pull out. Like there's sometimes they'll be in a gunfight and a guy will just reach into a truck and pull out a katana. <laughs> and right. you're like, hey, where did that come from? And they, it's just they just constantly remind you, hey, don't forget. There's something to do with samurais in this movie, but we we don't know what it is ourselves. It's yeah, like we don't really know what it is. And then there's that scene where, um, so in the opening chase scene, you know, the the one guy uh, is is killed, and then the other guy is is mangled really badly in a fire because his car blew up. Because of course it did. Uh, and so they're trying. The cops are trying to keep this guy alive because he's the only one that's on the inside that that kind of knows what's up. 
So uh, Fujiyama sends his goons over to the hospital to kill this guy. And <laughs> so ridiculous. This woman dresses up like a nurse and pushes the biggest dude in the movie in a clothes hamper through the hospital, which I don't know if you noticed this either, but right next to the, the burn unit, right? The one room where this dude was, was hanging out right next door, the door said dentist, just like it was the, it wasn't down the hall. It was just right there. <laughs> and so anyway, so like, then he pulls out his katana, right. To cut this dude's head off. And he just like saws at it. <laughs> it's not like, whew, like you would expect like a, a very apt fighter to do, you know, he just it starts sawing at this dude's head. I mean, everything about it. I've watched yeah. this movie so many times and I've never been sober for it. Uh, so I'm a little bit surprised that I'm even doing as well as I am remembering <laughs> things, but it's so good. Well, yeah. And that guy who sawed off a, a burn victim's head, who is supposedly a samurai also, goes on to like cut the throat of a police police officer's wife like he he and this these are all non-samurai things like everything about this movie has nothing to do with samurai except the fact that they call a guy samurai and they have katanas but that it's almost better for that because i just well yeah i mean there's some real bastardization of like bushido code and stuff like that in here uh where the guy that looks like james cam uh looks like kurt cameron at the restaurant fight, you know what I'm talking about? There's a bunch of those guys that will off themselves just to keep from, you know, like they failed their training or whatever. So they, they kill themselves, uh, which again, which is, just feels kind of like a bastardization of that, uh, of that whole thing. Before we move on from dialogue, I want to talk, because in the opening chase scene, very early on, you get their bad dialogue, like Samurai, what's Joe Samurai constantly, I think he says about six times, he just says, shoot, shoot him. Shoot, yeah, shoot him yes, just over yes. and over and over. And what's yeah. my was go, go faster, go, go. And it's just over. That's all he says when he's not talking to the helicopter. He's just saying over again, shoot, shoot him. Shoot. And it's just, yeah. it's and then clearly when, the, it was just improv, right? And he right. did not know anything to say. We also get the first, and, and this is a theme throughout the movie, his partner, Frank, I don't even know what the right word for, he's not a terrible partner, but he's always watching and not doing anything. Like there was oh, one man. point where a guy is on fire and he looks to Joe Samurai and goes, he's burning. He's burning. Do something, man. He's burning. I'm like, well, you could do something too. And that's kind of this thing throughout the movie. Like he'll just sit there and watch all these things happen and never, and he'll like react to it, which is funny enough. But yeah, he'll never right. actually do anything. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought him up because I wanted to talk so badly about his facial expressions, uh, <laughs> especially in that scene where I mentioned earlier with the nurse, because it just randomly will cut to him and he just has the most over-exaggerated looks of surprise and, and awe on his face. It's clear. It feels a lot like they, they shot some of those reaction shots after the fact. I don't know how much you read about this movie, but it was sort of riddled with those kinds of production issues where, you know, they had wrapped on the film and Matt Hannon had gone off and cut off all of his hair. And then they were like, we've got to do some reshoots. So they gave him a, just the worst wig. And you can absolutely tell. Uh, there's even one scene where he gets punched in the back and it like flops up off of his head. <laughs> But the my favorite Frank moment is when they're trying to get over this fence and Frank climbs, <laughs> like crawls underneath it. <laughs> and uh, Joe Samurai just like hops over it. It's just that's the sort of pinnacle of what of the different how they treat these two characters, you know, Matt Hannon, the guy who plays Samurai Joe. Uh, I, I've read this multiple places that he hated everything about this movie, like he hated acting it. And he hated that they were doing everything in one take. So in, in a lot of the scenes, he said he was he was acting purposely terrible. 
because he would he thought it would prompt them to reshoot and they never would. So when you see his facial expressions in this movie, I, I have to believe him because there's no way you could act that bad and think you're doing good. His facial expression never changes. There's a scene, and I will never get this scene out of my head, where he is with the, the girl who owns the restaurant and it's her birthday. And he walks in in a Speedo with a cake singing happy birthday with this deadpan look on his face. It was such, it was, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Yeah. And I will never see anything like that again. It was just so bizarre. And that's yeah, how his facial expression of, is the whole time. Yeah. And speaking of things that you'll never see again or get out of your head, that giant yarn lion head in the, in that restaurant <laughs> office is so wildly out of place and just intrudes on every shot that it's in. Right. I have no idea why that thing is in that room or, but I'm glad. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that, that thing, I don't know if it was something they just overlooked and didn't fix or something they wanted to make a point. I don't know, but you're right. It, it takes over every scene that it's in and it's in way too many scenes and you will know yeah. when it's in the room. Yeah. With them. Another thing that I, I, love it i love that it happened more than once is this continual feud with sliding doors like there oh. was one scene where they walk up to uh okamura who's another one of the japanese crime bosses supposedly and they stand outside of his screen door while he's in a sex scene which we're going to talk more about the sex scenes in a second because there's way they, too many of yeah. them they had like a quota but anyway they're standing yeah. outside the door it's joe samurai and his partner frank and first off they watch for way too long yeah and then from it and then from outside the door, they go, freeze, you're under arrest. But then they can't open the door. They're like trying <laughs> to slide it open. They can't get in. So the yeah. guy runs away. And then this happens again later on where there are people spying on police officer Peggy through her sliding window. And they try and they can't get, get it open either. And I'm, I, I don't understand what the problem is with the sliding door. I think it's so clear that they were using just anybody's house that they could borrow and so none of them knew how the doors worked or the windows were i mean there was something i read something about how the cars used in the movie actually belonged to the actors that they didn't have a budget enough to so you know they were just like going over to you know joe samurai's house and, and borrowing or maybe they were just like squatters in these houses just taking advantage of you know open houses or something and they had no idea how to how the hardware worked I'm going to believe the squatter theory because that makes this so much better. <laughs> yeah, especially that one, like the beachside manor that he has at one point. There's no way that they afforded to rent that thing. No, it, it had, had to, to be... belong to somebody yes. or they stole it. And another. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another great window moment also comes from Okamura uh, whenever he's trying to escape from this house where they've got him cornered in, which presumably is his house. He leaps out of a window that is right next to the front door. Mm -hmm. no explanation yes. whatsoever so you see him leap out of it and you see the front door and then on the outside he stands up and the front door is still right next to him and the whole time you'll be wondering why didn't he just walk out the door instead of jumping face first through a glass window it's clear that they just didn't have the keys to that door and it was probably <laughs> locked from when they broke in the back door <laughs> so they were like we just got to go through the window guy it's fine oh <laughs> uh, yeah that has to be it uh, there's uh there's one thing that that happens in this movie that surprises me every time. Did you have more window door stuff? I don't know. That was it. So, no, that's okay. So this is this is an this is a similar uh, situation to the window thing though. It's not a door, but it's a it's an escape scene, and it's when it's the most jarring cut in the whole film uh, when 
Joe Samurai is coming off of uh, the roof and he's kind of hopping down several levels of this roof and he comes off the final level and before his feet even hit the ground, this is a major action set piece that we've just come through, you know, and before his feet even hit the ground and we've resolved it, we've cut hard cut to a sex scene uh, featuring two characters that had nothing to do with the previous scene. <laughs> and that isn't the only time they hard cut to sex scene. Like the very first one comes out of nowhere. Like they're, there's not really, I mean, there's never any lead up to it, but all of a sudden it's Joe Samurai and this and Peggy the cop getting on. And there was no reason for us to be there in that moment. Because again, it was one of those things where it's like, we're in the middle of, I believe they had just like, he had just looked up at the helicopter and said, hey, it's time to celebrate. And then they, I mean, I guess that's yeah. a better lead in than we got from, from the one you right. mentioned. But yeah. still, those cuts are so shocking. And they just, there's no logic to why they cut like that. Unless... I mean, everything in this movie was done on a first take. So maybe something happened after that. And they were like, oh, we, we can't conclude this. I don't know. But yeah, well, it's also it also feels a lot like, especially when you talk about the sex scenes, that these were scenes written by a middle schooler uh, with no firm grasp on how human sexuality actually works, <laughs> because the women always still have their underwear on. It's really just it's very Andy Sedaris, like just breast shots. Right. Like and just kind of the the cinemax softcore porn approach you know but still everybody's wearing their undergarments so it just feels very middle school like no real intimacy there and it also feels a lot like joe marshall was not allowed or he just didn't or he chose not to actually touch any of the uh sensual parts right because he clearly in painstakingly avoids all of that whenever he's <laughs> like stroking the arms of these ladies yeah and and his, again to go back to his facial expression in these sex scenes his facial expression is just so stone-faced mm. like he is getting zero enjoyment out of this which is yeah. again that's the way he is for the whole, pretty much the whole movie and it's, yeah. it makes it that much more entertaining because even when you're just getting the side of his face it's just deadpan no matter what's happening to him he never has any expression i was gonna say like the, it also feels a lot like dude just didn't memorize his lines that one long monologue looked so clear because the camera is like a front facing shot and it's the close up and it looks so much like he just keeps glancing at cue cards during this long diatribe where he's you know showing like facing off with them in the in the restaurant he'll say a few lines and then he'll like kind of cut over to the side and then say a few more lines and you know it's very jerky and very his eyes are, are darting all over the place uh, but again, that sort of goes to your point that so much of it was shot in long single takes that, mm -hmm. you know, that was, that was a lot of words. And for somebody who was clearly not very invested in this project, why would you memorize that whole monologue? I also just have to say that his character is not a very sympathetic character in general. Like he is a, a first class douchebag. He, oh, yeah. he, he, he doesn't care about, I mean, I, I'd, I'd say he, he might care about Frank, but he, like he treats women awful yeah well he, he's, he's an outsider right i mean he so he the frank is his partner but only on this assignment because he's true. from he's from a different precinct so but yeah you're right he is he's terrible to women and you know for the the brotherhood of of policehood to be what it what it what we know it is he is he's kind of hanging these folks out to dry pretty frequently they, there are also some great shootout scenes in this like there's yes. that one the shootout scene where they're in the trees and they, they had to pick the skinniest trees to have this yeah. shootout scene because they keep hiding behind trees and popping up. And there's no way these trees would cover these people. And it just, it goes on for so long that again, it's well, just one of those Frank scenes. Frank put so many rounds in that one dude. Uh, <laughs> and, and he just keeps shooting. <laughs>
and, and and the thing like that that clip is so great because it looks like they recycle the same shot of Frank shooting his gun like five times uh, and then put five different rounds into the other guy but it's the same shot every time he fires that that's economical filmmaking right there oh, just, for sure. just <laughs> all all of the fight scenes are fantastic and another great one is whenever they after the villains actually finally get in to get in through Peggy's window they they sort of torture her by pouring burning oil on her from right. a frying pan. There, this frying pan is a typical frying pan, very low. They must have poured out like a gallon of water from that. Like they just keep pouring yeah. it on her, and there's always more. And I'm like, there's no way there was that much water in that tiny frying pan. There's also a lot of like really weird. Frank has a big dick jokes mm-hmm. uh, in in this movie, and also like that Joe Marshall has you know. It's a, it's enough, but it's not the size of a jumbo jet, right? I mean, it, it, I, I maintain that a middle schooler wrote the whole thing. Uh, that would explain a lot of the like rough cuts and, you know, like let's, this scene is boring. Let's get back to the sex stuff. Right. And also, I mean, again, not, not to pile on, this is clearly a movie that did not have a budget. They couldn't even shoot at night because they didn't have budget right. for lights, but the sound is so inconsistent and bad, like, especially I forget the guy's name, uh, uh, Samurai Joe's rival that's supposedly a samurai in the other gang. Yeah. His sound is consistently terrible. Like every time he S's anything, it like hisses into the microphone. And it's it got to the point where I'm like, please just don't say any words with an S in them because otherwise <laughs> yeah. you're doing fine. A ton of uh, that stuff had to be put in an ADR though, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they, especially some of the like further away shots when they're just walking around town or whatever, they, they had to go in and post and put a lot of that. So it would make sense that if they had a bad microphone in ADR that some of those S's would hit kind of hard. I want, to, I want to talk about some of the death scenes because there's some great deaths here too. Uh, the sounds they make when they die are great, but I have to shout out to my favorite death, which is this guy gets shot and then manages to backwards somersault off a diving board into a pool before dying. <laughs> which is so awesome and so elaborate. But, th- and there's another one uh, in that chase scene where they run over a guy and the way they cut it to make it look like they were running over him is just hilarious. Right, I mean, so you can, you start with that opening chase scene and you're like, well, this isn't very good, but but there's something about the way that that's cut that makes it feel like they're still trying. Uh, and so you're, you're not all the way sold yet that, that they've just abandoned all hope, right? And it's it's really when uh, Joe and Frank get back to the precinct, and you have to and you have to sort of endure some of that dialogue, that it becomes really clear that the screenwriter had no uh, real direction on some of these things. And it, I mean, clearly, just they were trying to capitalize on buddy cop movies, right? On like the the lethal weapon sort of thing, mm-hmm. and they just gave you like a really really dollar store version of it. There, there's one other thing I want to get to, uh, and that's some of the great side characters they have, like the the waiter at the Blue Lagoon, who is just yes. over the top. But it's so funny because up to this point, like it's all been played. I mean, it, it's all been played seriously from from the point of like none of these characters are like the comic relief. They're all very right. serious characters. And then this character comes in with no reason to be this eccentric and he's just fantastic. And there's, again, there's no reason he's got one scene. There's no reason for him to be this way, but he was so awesome. Yeah. Where's, where's the spinoff with that character, right? I want to follow him home and see what his life is like. And you know, the actor would give you 110% in that uh, film. Absolutely. (laughs) And then another one of the great side characters is the police chief. Oh uh, yeah, I <laughs> there's so many moments there where he like there's one scene in particular that feels like they forgot to yell cut. 
because he's angry at Joe and Frank and he like sends them out and then he completely drops character and just starts laughing and the camera just stays on him for like five seconds. And he also has one of my favorite quotes from the movie where he goes, I feel like someone stuck a big club up my ass and it hurts. Got to figure out a way to get it out of there. <laughs> Speaking of characters who gave all they had to this movie, he was like, he was intense the whole movie. And he played, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody in this, in this movie was particularly a good actor or, or, or you, but his character and the character of that waiter were both very, very, I would much rather spend time with them than spend more time with Samurai Joe because they're, he's just mm, didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> As I mentioned before, we we were coming on. Uh, we have to do the sequel, which mm. and and the sequel is a really interesting exercise because I think that and you can um, feel free to to agree or disagree, but I think that the Samurai Cop was was cre was made in earnest, right? Like I believe it was sincere for the most part. I don't think that that the things that they that we think are funny, I don't think that they were put in for laughs, right? But it's it's received such a second life as a bad movie that the second film made not even that long ago, uh, honestly, just a few years back uh, and uh, crowdfunded like through Kickstarter or something. They knew going in that they wanted to make a bad movie, right? And sometimes that can backfire uh, when you, you're like, oh, well, the success of the original was that it was bad. So let's just do that. But it is such, it's so perfect at like paying homage to the original and like, but not so over the top. All the original cast comes back, including your boy from the Blue Lagoon. Like yes. everybody, everybody's back, and they add Tommy Wiseau to it. Oh, it's remarkable. I'm so sold. Is it easier to find? Because this one, whenever I went to watch it, it's a very hard to find movie. You can only get it right now on the Microsoft Store, which I don't watch my movies through the Microsoft stores, so it was it was yeah, that's, difficult. I, I mean. I, I watch on Xbox, so that's how I've gotten them. But I do think that Samurai Cop Two is probably available on Amazon because they did it. They did it independently. So, so what? What about you? What What are you writing these days? Everything to promote? Anything to talk about? What's going on with you? Yeah. So I'm. I'm uh, right now. I'm in revisions uh, for forthcoming novel called The Woman with a Thousand Faces that's due out in May of next year. So I've got to get those back to the publisher pretty soon. Uh, probably last week, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, the, uh, that's, that's kind of the big project. Uh, otherwise, uh, I have uh, started working on a new, uh, Southern Gothic horror story, but, uh, yeah, the one with a thousand faces coming out in May. Awesome. And, uh, you have other novels too, right? That cause we'll include, uh, links in the show notes to them. For sure. Yeah. Um, ShaneWilsonAuthor.com. I write in an extended universe, sort of magical realism stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So to all of our listeners, this has been another episode of the Awesome Awful Podcast, and we will see you next time.